Okay, I want to just begin this morning by reading you a couple of headlines that have been in the newspapers, online and physical, uh, over the past year. Okay, this is in the last year. Uh, First one I came across was from across the pond in the Chicago Tribune, uh, which reads, Willow Creek pastor and leadership guru Bill Hybels resigns from the influential megachurch he founded following multiple allegations of sexual misconduct. Uh, And then as you read a little bit more about that story, you you find out that his successor, uh, uh, Steve uh, Carter, uh, and the whole elders team all resigned after uh, that news came out because of their their view of the mishandling uh, of uh, these allegations against the founding pastor of that church. But scandals like that are not just across the water, closer to home. Uh, This was in the Daily Mail uh, just last year. Leader of evangelical Christian youth camp dies amid uh, police investigation, investigation for abusing young boys in the 1970s. This was a story of a a man called John Smith, who was a Christian leader uh, in the quite famous Ewan camps back in the 70s, and he was accused of savagely beating some young boys uh, who were on the camp. And what made this story incredibly scandalous was actually while he was serving and while he was committing allegedly these these crimes, uh, the current Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, was also on the camps Uh, as a dormitory supervisor. And so the story had uh, uh, an even bigger impact, an even bigger uh, effect. My question really as we begin is, uh, when you read those headlines and hear those headlines, what is your reaction? What's your reaction? Well, the the reaction of many, many, many people when they hear those headlines would be to think one word. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Uh, A hypocrite is someone who claims to to be one thing, uh, but the reality is there's something different. Uh, Someone who walks the walk, or talks the talk, but doesn't walk the walk. Someone who doesn't practice uh, what they preach. And and we know that that Jesus himself saved his most savage criticism for the religious hypocrites uh, of his own day. Jesus, just like us, finds hypocrisy uh, disgusting appalling uh, and ugly. Um, It's terrible to discover uh, someone who claims to worship the true, uh, the living, the holy God, and yet to live a life that's completely inconsistent with that belief. Their behavior uh, is not at all consistent with what they claim to believe. Now, we need to be really careful when reading those kind of stories, because the danger is we point the finger too quickly, too harshly uh, at other people. Uh, Of course, we'd all have to admit, for every single Christian, every single one of us, of course, there is a gap between what we say we believe and how we actually live out our lives and live out our belief. Uh, And that gap that we all feel and we all experience is rightly called hypocrisy. We are all hypocrites. We are all guilty. We all fail to completely practice what we preach. We all talk the talk, but often fail 
to walk the walk with any consistency. Well, Jonah chapter 1 confronts this issue of hypocrisy head on, head on this morning. Uh, It shows us, but wonderfully, it shows us what hypocrisy looks like, but it also begins to show us the cure for hypocrisy, begins to show us how we can close that gap. And the way the gap will be closed, here's the, the shorthand, the way the gap will be closed is by seeing a clearer vision of who God really is in all his majesty and all his mercy. And as we see who God is more clearly, uh, then that gap will be closed. This is a book all about God. And that may sound, well, Lee, that's mind-numbingly obvious, isn't it? It's in the Bible, it's all about God. But there's only 48 verses in this book, Uh, And in those 48 verses, 32 of them mention God by name. This is is a book just absolutely all about God, showing you, confronting you with a vision of who God really is uh, so that we might more closely worship him with all of our lives. Well, I want to just look at two ideas this morning, very briefly, as briefly as I can. So will not be very brief, but as briefly as I can. Uh, we're going to look at the problem of hypocrisy, and then we're going to look at the cure for hypocrisy. First, let's look at the problem of hypocrisy. Chapter 1 is, is put together. We won't go through all this in detail. Don't, don't worry. But uh, chapter 1 is put together like a big, massive sandwich very carefully uh, structured. Uh, Again, we won't go through every line here. It begins with God hurling, throwing a storm uh, after Jonah in verse 4. And then at the end, after a little introduction, after, and then at the end of the chapter, it it ends with the the sailors hurling uh, Jonah into the sea. The same verb is used. Uh, It it then is followed the, the butter on each side. Uh, it's then followed by a prayer, a prayer of the sailors to anybody who'll listen, uh, and then ends with a prayer to the Lord, the sailors praying to the Lord. Uh, we see the, the, the sailors wake up Jonah and ask him what is the cause for the, for the storm and the, and the plight that they're in. And then there is Jonah, them asking Jonah about the remedy for the plight they're in. And it all leads you to the center the center, the, the, the ham and the ham sandwich, the, the bullseye uh, on the dartboard. And that is verse 9. Verse 9. Look down at verse 9 or look up at the screen um, where Jonah says these words, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. It's this wonderful statement of faith. It's this wonderful description uh, of who God is. Um, and actually, the, the, the whole of the chapter then fleshes out that statement that God is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. First, he's the God of heaven. Jonah's God is the God of heaven. He's not just the God of Israel. He's not some uh, regional God that's limited to a particular place in a particular land or a particular people. Uh, He's not just one of many gods. He is the God of heaven overall. Uh, And that explains why then Jonah is sent to the people of Nineveh, who are hundreds and hundreds of miles away. At this point, they have nothing really to do with the people of Israel. They worship a whole host of other gods themselves. And yet we see that Jonah is sent to them. 
Why? Because all people everywhere will have to give an account to this God. Men and women, boys and girls. He is the God of everyone, everywhere. He is the God of heaven, including uh, the people of Assyria, including the people of Nineveh. He's the God of heaven. Then secondly, he is, Jonah's God is the God who made the sea and the, and the land. He's the God who made the sea and the land. Uh, we read these words in verse 4. Then the Lord sent or hurled uh, a great wind uh, on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the, ships threat, the, the ship threatened to break up. The word hurled that's used there is, is the same word that's more commonly used in the Old Testament to speak of what a man does with a spear or a javelin, hurls it, throws it at a target. And so what a man does with a spear, we see that God can do with a hurricane. He can lift it up and aim it and throw it at his target. He is the God who's, who made everything, who owns everything, who controls everything. Um, also, the fact that this is all based on the sea. In fact, the sea, if you read through the story really carefully, most of the verbs, most of the doing words in, in chapter 1 are actually done by the sea. It's the sea that is storming. It is the sea that is raging. It's the sea that's the main player, the main actor uh, in chapter 1. It's mentioned 10 times in the chapter in the original. Uh, and again, if you're a, a, a Jew, you had a very different view of the sea than we do. We tend to think of the sea as the place you go at the summer, in the summertime with your shorts on and, and maybe uh, swim in and surf in and build sandcastles beside. For us, the sea's got all sorts of positive summer associations. It's great, which is why our holiday Bible club is Stramtown by the sea. You get the idea. However... However, for the ancient Jews, they had a very, very different view of the sea. They viewed the sea as the place of... The Jews were non... Sorry, first, the Jews were non-seafaring people, unlike the British. Uh, it wasn't ruled by Britannia for if you were an ancient Jew. Uh, so even at the height of their power, under the reign of King Solomon, when they built their own commercial navy... We read that they had to crew these ships with uh, people up the coast from Tyre and Sidon who were seafaring people. Jews feared the sea. It was the place of chaos and evil and darkness and sea monsters. It was the place of danger. And yet we see very, very clearly here that the writer is stressing that God is in control of the sea. He's in control of the sea. He is the one who sends the storm that causes the waves to rise up. And he is the one who calms the storm. It is all under his complete control. God is the one who made the sea and the dry land. Do you see how the, the chapter explains the statement uh, of verse 9? He is the God of heaven, uh, the God who made the sea and the land. Verse 9 is wonderfully true, but look closely at verse 9 if you've got your Bible open. Look at verse 9. What, what is not true in verse 9? I wonder, did you spot it? What is not true in verse 9? 
What is not true in verse 9 is the, the two little words, I worship, I worship. Uh, Jonah makes this wonderfully accurate, faithful statement, uh, summarizing the, the Jewish faith and a careful description of God. But his life reveals that he doesn't actually believe a word of it. His life is totally inconsistent with the, the words of his lips. So he claims that he worships the God of heaven, the God of the sea and the land. He claims to worship the God of heaven. And yet when the God of heaven, the one who rules over all, gives him a word to speak to a people and tells him to go, flip the map around, over there, hundreds of miles, he gets on a boat and heads that way, thousands of miles. He claims to worship the, the God who's over all, and yet he refuses to listen and refuses to obey him. He claims to worship the God, so he turns from God's word. He flees God's presence. Uh, again, he thinks he can... It's, it's insane, really. He, he knows Psalm 139, that there's nowhere you can go from God. Um, he knows that God is the God who made the sea, who owns the sea, who controls the sea, and gets on a boat and goes in the opposite direction on the sea, thinking crazily thinking he can get away from God. doesn't make any sense. And then he refuses not just to speak for God, but he refuses to speak to God. I wonder, did you notice that when Andy read for us? So when the storm strikes and the sailors, these experienced hardened sailors, are utterly terrified. They've never seen a storm like this before. Uh, And they're crying out to any God that'll listen. Gods that that are not real and cannot help. They wake Jonah, the captain wakes Jonah, and urges him to pray. And what does he do? Nothing. Nothing. He refuses to speak to the God who created the sea uh, and the land. Um, The only God who can actually help. So it's not just that his ministry, he's abandoned his ministry to speak for God. He's actually abandoned his relationship and refuses even to speak to God. Jonah, there is a gap. Do you see it? There's a huge gap between the words of his lips, what he claims to believe, and the behavior of his life. They, they are not consistent in any way. There's a massive gap, and we call that gap hypocrisy, don't we? We call that gap hypocrisy. Saying one thing, living an entirely different way. But again, we need to be really careful. We need to be really careful here. It's very easy to point the finger too harshly at Jonah. How are we getting on? If you were to follow me around, if you were to follow me around day by day, watch how I speak and act, I think it wouldn't be too long. In fact, I know it wouldn't be too long before you spot the gap in me between what I say I believe and how I behave. And I strongly suspect I would not be alone. I strongly suspect that that gap between what I believe and how we behave is there in us all. It's there in us all. And so we say we worship Uh, the God who wants all people to come to know him, and yet we're not bothered speaking for him. We are actually not bothered 
that there's a whole bunch of people around us who don't know God, who don't know his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and are heading to a lost eternity. And it doesn't bother us. It doesn't sadden us in any way. We claim to worship the God who is holy and righteous. And yet our internet history might reveal something very different. Uh, We claim to say we worship the God who rules over all. And yet how often are our lives gripped by anxiety and worry and fear? Uh, We claim to worship uh, the God who alone is the source of life and joy. Easy to say that on a Sunday. And yet what is the burning ambition we have for ourselves and our children? Well, it's for a good education in order to get that good career, in order to earn that comfortable lifestyle. Because we really believe, actually, that that's where joy and life comes from, a comfortable lifestyle. We claim that our God is the one who rules over all, and yet we don't pray to him. We don't pray to him. We don't ask him for help. We don't ask him for wisdom. We don't ask him for guidance and direction. We don't ask him for mercy. Do you see how often we are like Jonah, if we're honest? There's a massive gap between the words that we sing on a Sunday or we say and the lives that we live. We've got to feel the weight of that this morning. The problem of hypocrisy. Thankfully, the chapter doesn't stop there because it goes on to give us the cure for hypocrisy. And there is a cure. I think that's wonderful to hear. We're we're all hypocrites. We're happy to admit that. I think we have to admit that. But it is possible that that gap could be closed. So if you're here this morning, uh, perhaps this is one of the things that has put you off most about Christianity. Put you off most. As you've seen in the lives of other people who claim to follow Jesus, a lifestyle that is inconsistent. And I'm sorry if that's what you've seen. Uh, But the reality is Christians are not perfect people. We're not. We never claim to be. We are forgiven people who are being changed. The question then is how are we changed? What is the cure for hypocrisy? Well, it turns out it it requires two pills that have to be taken daily. Two pills that have to be taken daily. And the first pill is seeing the majesty of God. Seeing and savoring the majesty of God. Uh, Sebastian Junger wrote a book called The Perfect Storm. You might have seen the movie. There's a movie made of the book. But uh, in the book, he has a a brilliant description of a hurricane. Uh, Here we go. A mature hurricane is by far the most powerful event on earth. The combined nuclear arsenals of... Uh, the United States and the former Soviet Union couldn't contain enough energy to keep a hurricane going for one day. A typical hurricane could provide all the electric power needed by the United States for three or four years. Robin McCormick. Um, Waves generated by a storm in Rhode Island in 1938 were so huge that they literally shook the earth Seismographs in Alaska placed uh, or picked up their impact 5,000 miles away. 
not a, not a bit of wonder then the, the sailors were scared. This was a hurricane that they were facing. Uh, these are experienced, hardened ser- uh, sailors, and they're terrified for their lives, which is why they're happy. Before they throw the prophet over, they throw their prophets overboard. Uh, they're terrified uh, by the wind uh, and the waves. But I want you to notice how their fear progresses through the chapter. I wonder, did you spot it? Uh, It's not maybe quite as clear in English as it is in the original language. We see that in verse 5, when the hurricane strikes, they are afraid. They're afraid. Um, But after they they draw lots, and the lot falls on Jonah, and they scream at him over the, the, the sound of the wind and the lightning, and they shout at him, Who are you? And what have you done to cause this? And Jonah tells them, that he has run away from his God, and his God, although they didn't know it, is the true and living God who made everything and controls everything, the sea and the land. We read verse 10, that they're not just scared. Now, literally, at this the men feared with a great fear. Now they're terrified. So they're scared of the storm. They're scared of the storm. But when they hear what has caused the storm, a God who's so powerful that he can throw a storm as a man throws a javelin, well, at that, they're terrified. And then you read on to verse, uh, down to to verse 15. When they throw, after they they listen to Jonah's instructions, uh, nobly they try to save his life, but they're powerless to help. And finally, they submit to God's word to them through Jonah and they throw him overboard, and then the sea becomes totally calm instantly. I don't know if you've ever been in a storm. It can take days for a storm to totally pass and for the sea to be calm, but here the sea is calm instantly, and you'd think they'd be delighted. That's what you'd expect. Throwing a party, whooping and cheering. How do they react? Verse 15, how do they react? And they took Jonah and threw him overboard, the raging sea. Sorry, verse 16. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. You see, 100-foot waves and 100-mile-an-hour winds, that's scary. But then finding out that that's caused by a powerful God who can throw a storm as a man throws a javelin, well, that's frightening. But then a God who's so powerful, he can calm that storm in an instant. Well, that's utterly terrifying. You get the idea? Their reaction to God. They see something true about God. They glimpse the reality that God is the majestic God who made and controls every aspect of this world. And they are filled with awe and reverent fear. And can I suggest that they're right? They're right to react like that. For those of you who are Bible readers, does this story sound familiar? Is there another story like this in the Bible? Well, if you're a Bible reader, all sorts of bells and whistles should be going off at this point because it sounds an awful lot like a New New Testament story, doesn't it? Where there's another boat trip 
uh, where there's other experienced sailors, another passenger that's sleeping, another violent storm that terrifies experienced sailors, where they wake up the sleeping uh, passenger and there's a supernatural calm. Well, it's like Mark 4, isn't it? Where Jesus calms the storm. Where Jesus calms the storm. We're in the middle of a violent storm where these, again, experienced sailors are fearing for their lives. They wake up the sleeping passenger, the Lord Jesus, and he stands up and he says, quiet, be still. And in an instant, in an instant, the wind dies down and the sea becomes calm. How would you expect the disciples to react? We read they're utterly terrified. Utterly terrified. Who is this? Who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. They're filled with awe and reverent fear. They recognize who he is. He is the mighty God. Jesus shares in the full authority and power uh, of the Godhead. I remember, I should have brought it, I should have brought a bottle. I was going to bring a bottle, I forgot. Uh, A friend of mine giving an illustration to children in a children's talk where he was standing shaking a two-liter bottle half filled with water. And he got the children to try to shout at the water to stop it. And all these children are shouting, stop, stop. Uh, And he just keeps shaking until finally he said stop and simultaneously he stopped shaking. And in an instant, the water inside the bottle was still and calm. And his point was very simple. Only the person who controls the waves can say stop and they'll respond. You see what Jesus is revealing? He is none other than the divine uh, God himself, the second person of the Trinity. How should we react then to the Lord Jesus? What should our right response to him be? It should be awe and reverent fear. We should realize when we see his majesty, his power and authority, our reaction should be, I must worship him. I must worship him. It is no small thing. It is no trivial thing, no minor thing to ignore his word. It is no small thing to disobey him and reject him. He is the God we must worship. He has the right to demand our full allegiance and our complete obedience. When we see the majesty of God, our response should be, I must worship him. I must worship him with both my lips and my life. Pill number one is seeing the majesty of God and then responding by saying, I must worship him. But there's a second pill. And the second pill that cures hypocrisy is seeing the mercy of God. Seeing the mercy of God. We get the first hint at the mercy of God in verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Uh, Again, uh, Nineveh is the, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the, the rising superpower of the day. And even by the ancient standards, if you go to the, the, 
British Histor uh, Museum of Natural History or History Museum, you will see in it lots of um, there's lots of statues, lots of um, I think it's called an obelisk where there's lots of writing on it. And we get a little insight into the, the history of, of Assyria. Um, and when you read what they did and how they lived and how they ruled, their cruelty was legendary, even by the standards of the ancient world. This was a nation that was cruel uh, to, uh, to their enemies uh, and even within their own nation, ex- were happy to exploit the weak, uh, and where there was much uh, cruelty and injustice. And yet, instead of sending an airstrike to immediately wipe this evil nation off the face of the planet, how does God react? Verse 2 He doesn't send an airstrike, He sends a prophet. He sends a prophet. Why? Why would He send a prophet? Well, clearly, and as Jonah rightly understands, even from the very first verse, God's intention is to warn them so that they would repent, so that they would turn to him and trust him. Jonah understands that. Flip over to chapter 4, verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2. He prayed, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah understands that God's intention was always to warn so that they would repent and turn to him and put their trust in him. God, or Jonah knew that God was a God who is slow to get angry and quick to be merciful. Is that how you view him? Is that how you view God, really? Do we not sometimes, are we not sometimes tempted to think that God's a God who kind of loves judging and punishing? But Jonah understood that the true and living God was exactly the other way around. A God who's tilted towards mercy and kindness and grace and forgiveness. And so he runs away from God because he wants these people to be punished. We'll come back to that later. I want you to see first that our God is a God who's tilted towards mercy. He is the judge, the God of heaven, before whom all men will have to give an account. But he's a reluctant judge and inclined towards mercy uh, and grace. The second way we see the mercy of God is how God deals with the sailors. So Jonah runs off because he doesn't want to preach to pagans in case they repent because he thinks they deserve all they're going to get. And what does he end up doing? Preaching to pagans who repent. God permitted Jonah to run because he wants to show mercy clearly to the sailors. To the sailors. We see wonderfully that they are converted. Um, clearly, Jonah spoke more than is just recorded in verse 9, because in verse 10, they refer to God as the Lord, L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is the covenant name 
uh, of the promise-keeping, promise-making, promise-keeping God of Israel. They respond. They respond by trusting. Unlike Jonah, they respond in two ways. They respond to, by praying to this God and by trusting this God's words. God's words come, just look at verse 14. Uh, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. They clearly understand that the instruction to throw Jonah overboard, yes, Jonah has spoken, but it has come from God. And if he wants them to do it, okay, then they will obey. And they throw him overboard, and instantly Jonah is picked up and thrown to what they think is a watery grave, uh, and instantly the sea grew calm. But again, notice how they respond. Notice how they respond. Verse 16. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. How did they respond? Worship. They responded by worshiping him, making vows dedicating their lives to him. Now, at one level, they've already been saved at that point, haven't they? They they don't need God for anything anymore. They've been saved. The storm has stopped. But what is the response to someone who, the right response by someone who has been saved? What is the right response to the mercy of God? Well, it's with joy and gratitude to worship him and to live your life for him. What is the beginning of the cure to hypocrisy? The beginning of the cure to hypocrisy is seeing the majesty of God and realizing I must worship him. I must worship him. And then it's seeing the mercy of God and thinking I want to worship him. I want to worship him with gratitude and joy. Of course, that should be our reaction because we've been saved from something far greater than a physical storm or a hurricane. Um, I mentioned just a few moments ago the parallel story in the New Testament of Jesus calming the storm. I just want to finish by pointing out two differences in that story to chapter 1 of Jonah and how it shows us how Jesus fulfills what is going on in Jonah chapter 1 two differences. The first difference is Jonah is thrown overboard in that story. And in chapter 4, Jesus is not thrown overboard. He's not thrown into the storm of God's judgment. But of course, as you read on, what happens? As you read on, that's where the whole story's going, isn't it? He is thrown in, he is thrown into the storm of God's judgment, but it's not on the Lake of Galilee. It's on a cross. It's on a cross. It's there that he dies as a substitute for others. You see, Jonah dies as a sacrifice, a substitute for the sailors. He appears to die. We'll get into that next week. Uh, But Jesus really does die as a substitute for his people. And he dies on the cross. 
Jonah, the second difference is Jonah is referred to as an innocent man in verse 14. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. But as you read chapter 1, Jonah's far from innocent, isn't he? He's far from innocent, having turned away from God's word and fleeing God's presence. But when we come to the Lord Jesus, we have the only true innocent man who was never disobedient to God's word, who never ran away from the mission that God set before him, but went right to the cross willingly. He died there not for his own sin, like Jonah appears to suffer for. He doesn't die for his own sin. He dies for ours. He takes the penalty for all our hypocrisy. He takes the, the penalty for all our pride, for all our cruelty, uh, and callousness towards other people so that we might experience the calmness of God's love. You see, it's only when you begin to grasp the extent of the majesty of God that he is the creator and the sustainer of this entire world, both big and small. And he is a God who's been almost beyond words merciful to us by sending his son to die in our place that we might experience his love and kindness. When you see the majesty of God, you will, you will realize I must worship him. I must worship him because of who he is. But when you see the mercy of God, you will also say I want to worship him with all of my life. If you take those two pills every day, you'll not be cured instantly. Take a lifetime. But it will prevent hypocrisy leading to your spiritual death. You will, the gap will be closed year on year, year on year. We are going to take just a few moments to rejoice and give thanks for particularly the mercy of God, how Jesus stepped into the storm for us, the storm of God's judgment, so that we might be forgiven, that we might have hope and a future. Let me pray for us. Let's take a moment just in silence, just to confess our hypocrisy. Just allow the Holy Spirit just to expose something in your own heart, uh, and then I'll lead us in a prayer And then we will move into communion together. Let's take a moment.